And the other line had a sign on it that said, free will. And so the man walked up, and he went and stood in the line with the sign that said, predestined. And as he was waiting in line, an angel approached him and said, why are you in this line? And the man said, well, I, I chose this line. And the angel said, well, if you chose this line, then you need to be in the free will line. And so the man obediently left the predestined line and went and got in the free will line. And he's standing there waiting. Then suddenly another angel walks up to him and says, why are you in this line? And the man said, well, someone told me to be in this line. And the angel said, well, you're in the wrong line. If you were told which line to be in, you should be in the predestined line. And the man spent the rest of eternity going between two lines. And I, I, I tell that story because predestination is one of those controversial topics. One of those topics, whether you find it in the field of religion or politics or culture, it's one of those topics that, that people find great conflict with. And what I mean by that is that people choose a side on the issue, they entrench themselves, and they rarely go back to the source material to investigate what it really has to say about the subject. Now tonight we resume our Ministers of the Roundtable sermon series that we have entitled Reframe. Jay introduced this series last week and explained that for the month of May, each Sunday night one of our ministers is going to speak on this subject. And the idea is that we're going to address some topics that need to be reframed in some fashion. And what we mean by that is that we need to take another look at something. We, to reframe something is to look at it from a different angle. And last week, Jay led us in a study that reframed how we look at forgiveness. Next Sunday night, Mingu Chang will do, lead us in our lesson, and he's going to uh, discuss the subject of grace and have us reframe the way we look at grace. Tonight, I want to reframe the way we look at the concept of predestination. And here's why. It really is this simple. Predestination is a biblical concept. In fact, just five weeks ago, Ben was preaching in my absence during, while I was on a, a vacation, and I heard him reference predestination in his sermon entitled, uh, God's Timing. And, and, and it dawned on me, that is a word that has already made many of you uncomfortable that I said it from this pulpit. It's a term, it's a church word that we don't want to use despite the fact that if you open your Bibles, you'll find it. It's a term we're uncomfortable with, but it's a term that appears in Scripture. In Romans chapter 8, verses 29 through 30, Paul wrote these words, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. In Romans, Paul used the Greek term proorao, which means to see before, or to keep before one's eyes. That's the term translated predestined twice 
in Romans chapter 8, verse 29 and 30. And what Paul is saying here, he, he, he's indicating that in God's omniscience, God already knows who will conform to the image of His Son. That's what Paul means in this text. See, foreknowledge and free will can coexist because foreknowledge does not infer intervention. It's like seeing a movie for the second time. You know what's about to happen, but your knowledge of what's about to happen is not what makes it happen. And so in Romans chapter 8, we see this term predestined. And it indicates to us that in his omniscience, God already knows who's going to conform to his will. Now, you'll find the term predestined also in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 5. Another writing of Paul, and in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 5, Paul says that God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. If you continue in that same chapter and you drop down to verse 11, Paul adds this, in him a reference to Christ, in Christ we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now here in Ephesians, Paul used the Greek term pro or idzo, which means to predetermine or decide beforehand. And, and what Paul seems to indicate is that God decided before the creation of the world who could be adopted and who could receive his inheritance. But does such a decision by God eliminate our free will? Absolutely not. All I want you to understand here at the beginning of this lesson is that Paul clearly taught that predestination is a thing. The problem is that the dominant understanding of predestination in our culture is an erroneous understanding. And I want to break down why it's erroneous, and then I want to reframe this term that we can be so uncomfortable with and share with you how Paul uses this term in a biblical way. So let's start with what predestination is not. Predestination is not predetermined salvation for an individual. This is what most people think of when they hear the word predestination. And that's because the most popular form, the most popular teaching on predestination is associated with the five points of Calvinism, which are commonly referred to by an acronym known as TULIP. You see, Calvinistic predestination teaches this. It teaches total depravity. That's where the T in the acronym of TULIP comes from. And total depravity contends that mankind is sinful from birth. So sometimes we refer to this teaching as original sin. And the problem with this concept is that Scripture does not teach that sins are inherited. Instead, the Bible teaches that even though one is born into a world of sin, he or she does not become a sinner until he or she commits a sin. Just look at what the prophet Ezekiel said in Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 20. He wrote that the soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. 
The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So right there, this teaching of total depravity, of original sin, it contradicts what is taught in Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 20. And also consider the fact that Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 3. He said, whoever humbles himself like a child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus didn't commend, excuse me, Jesus didn't condemn children as sinners. He commended them as examples of innocence. And the implication of what Jesus is saying is that a child doesn't enter the world sinful. A child enters the world innocent. And what Jesus is implying by this statement is supported by Deuteronomy chapter 1 and verse 39, where Moses declared that children have no knowledge of good and evil. So this total depravity on which the doctrine of predestination, as is commonly found in our culture, is constructed, goes against Scripture. Now, I mentioned this acronym TULIP. The T in TULIP stands for total depravity. The U stands for unconditional election. It's the second component of the common teaching on predestination. Here's the problem, though. This unconditional election... It's the belief that since mankind is totally depraved, then salvation isn't something you can choose. It's something that God, in His arbitrary selection, has placed on people. That God has chosen of His own will who can or cannot receive His grace. The problem with this teaching is that it presents God as one who shows partiality. And Scripture clearly teaches that that is something contrary to the nature of God. For example, when Jehoshaphat initiated a spiritual revival in Judah, 2 Chronicles chapter 19, he appointed judges and instructed them to be careful with their judgments because there is no injustice with the Lord our God or partiality. Way back in the Old Testament, We're being told that it's the nature of God to be impartial. It's the nature of God not to play favorites. It's the nature of God to be just and fair. Then when God rebuked the priests during the prophetic ministry of Malachi, He told them in Malachi chapter 2 and verse 9, You do not keep my ways. And in the same verse, when He told them, You don't keep my ways, you're not doing things like I do them, He went on to say that, One of the ways they failed to imitate him is by showing partiality. Because he does not show partiality. Such declarations in the Old Testament led Paul to unabashedly declare in Romans chapter 2 and verse 11, in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 6, and in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 9, that God shows no partiality. And therefore, if God does not show partiality, then he's not arbitrarily choosing who's going to receive his grace. And therefore, this teaching that falls under the realm of what is commonly referred to as predestination is false. Unconditional election is contrary to the teachings of Scripture. 
The third component of the common teaching on predestination is called limited atonement. It contends that since salvation is contingent on God's selection, then Jesus' sacrifice, Jesus' death on the cross, the atoning work of Christ is limited only to those who God has selected. In other words, it doesn't apply to the rest of the world. That even if you wanted to receive salvation, you couldn't because Jesus' death was not for you since you were not chosen by God. This too contradicts Scripture, as you, well, as you likely already can tell. For example, in Titus chapter 2 and verse 11, Paul said that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, not a few select people, but for all people. And in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4, Paul said that God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 19, Paul said that in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself. Not a select few, not the ones that God chose, but everyone in the world has access to the atoning work of Jesus. And nowhere is this more clear than in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 2, where John referred to Jesus as the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only. Who do you think the hour is in this verse? Who do you think he's saying, who do you think he's referring to when he says, not only for our sins, he's referring to his audience, and his audience is the church. His audience are his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And he says that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, for the sins of those who make up the body of believers, but not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. So what John is saying is that Jesus died not just for the sins of those who find forgiveness for their sins through his atoning sacrifice, but Jesus died for every single person who failed to find forgiveness for their sins through his atoning sacrifice. Jesus died for everyone, regardless of whether or not they choose to follow him. And so, we approach this third element of the common teaching of predestination, this concept of limited atonement, and quickly discover that it too contradicts Scripture. The, third, the fourth component of the Calvinistic teaching on predestination is called irresistible grace. And irresistible grace teaches that those selected by God to receive His grace, they cannot resist salvation. In other words, if you're chosen by God, to have His grace poured out on you, then guess what? You're not going to be able to resist becoming a Christian. You're going to, of necessity, one day make that decision. It's going to be irresistible for you. The problem with this teaching is that it would make the command to evangelize superfluous. Our primary assignment is to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation for the expressed purpose of making disciples of all the nations. 
That's a combination of Mark chapter 16 and verse 15 and Matthew chapter 28 verse 19. Now think about that for a moment. If the ones that God has chosen to save are automatically going to turn to Him, then why should we invest the time or the energy or the resources to engage in a completely unnecessary endeavor? If everyone who God has chosen to save is going to choose Him automatically, then why would we ever pursue anyone? The Great Commission is a challenge to this teaching. It upends this teaching. And so the doctrine of irresistible grace that accompanies this idea that is commonly associated with predestination completely contradicts Scripture. Finally, the P in the TULIP acronym. The last component of the Calvinistic teaching on predestination that is so popular in the world today. It's known as perseverance of the saints, but colloquially we would call it once saved, always saved. It's the idea that if you are chosen by God, you're not only going to be unable to resist following Him, but you're never going to fall away. That no matter what, because God has chosen to save you, you're going to be saved. The problem with this teaching, this teaching that we call once saved, always saved, is that it is absolutely inconsistent with Scripture. Scripture clearly teaches that salvation can, in fact, be lost. And you know what? Scripture, scripture does this by describing our relationship with Christ in conditional terms. See, our relationship with Christ dictates whether or not we are in a saved state. Those who have received salvation are said to be in Christ. And those who have not received salvation are to, said to be separated from Christ. You can see those terms in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11, 12, and 13. So if Scripture indicates that one who was in Christ can potentially become separated from Christ, then Scripture indicates that one can lose his or her salvation. So consider a couple of passages. Colossians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. Paul states that one is reconciled in Christ's body of flesh by his death, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. That preposition, if, is really important. It indicates that a condition exists for maintaining one's reconciled state. And that condition is whether or not one continues in the faith. So Paul indicates that a failure to continue in the faith after being reconciled to God through the blood of Jesus that would be a condition on which our state of reconciliation would be compromised. And then you can go over to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 14 says, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm 
to the end. There's that conditional word again, if. The preposition if here indicates that a condition exists for maintaining our share in Christ. And that condition is whether or not we hold our original confidence firm to the end, which is a reference to the steadfastness of our belief in Jesus. Thus, the the author of Hebrews indicates that an abandonment or retraction of faith in Christ would be a condition on which our share in Christ would be compromised. Whether you're looking at Colossians chapter 1 or Hebrews chapter 3, you come across a small two-letter preposition that carries so much weight because it tells us there's a condition on which our salvation could be lost, that our in-Christ status could be abandoned. And therefore, it contradicts this teaching of once saved, always saved. See, Scripture clearly indicates that salvation can be lost because it speaks of our relationship with Christ in conditional terms. And so falling away is a possibility. And therefore, this teaching known as the perseverance of the saints is contradictory to Scripture. Each part of the common Calvinistic doctrine of predestination contradicts biblical teaching to one degree or another. And that means that this idea of predestination is not biblical predestination. So if this is an erroneous depiction of predestination, and yet Scripture clearly uses the terminology of being predestined, then what is it referring to? Well, there are two major components of the biblical teaching on predestination that I want you to wrap your mind around this evening as we kind of reframe what predestination means in Scripture. And the first component you need to consider is that predestination is a corporate state. Predestination is a corporate standing, meaning that a group is predestined rather than an individual. That's why Scripture repeatedly indicates that God's people are chosen as a collective group. In the Old Testament, the Israelites were chosen by God. The Israelites were reminded of this fact on numerous occasions. You can go to Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 6, where it's stated to the Israelites that you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Stay in Deuteronomy and go to chapter 14 and verse 2. You'll see a similar statement that's repeated. There, it said, you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Guess what? It says the same thing. You are chosen people. The Israelites were specially chosen by God to be His people. You get to the New Testament, 
And that same language is used, but no longer in the context of a nation known as Israel. That same language is used in the context of God's people who are now comprised of his church. So you get to a passage like 1 Peter chapter 2, where in verse 9 and 10, Peter says you, and he's referring to the church, you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. But what you need to understand is that this was not a compensatory pick. It's not like God looked down and said, all right, Israel failed me, I need to pick somebody new. No, 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 no. The church was always intended to be God's chosen people. We know this because if we jump over to the book of Ephesians, to chapter 1 and verse 4, Paul said that God chose us. The us there is a reference to Christians. The us there is a reference to the church. God chose us before the foundation of the world. The church wasn't chosen because Israel failed. Instead, Scripture asserts that the church was God's choice even before creation. But notice, it's the church, the collective group of God's people that is chosen. That's who this chosen status is applied to. Therefore, predestination is a corporate standing, not an individual standing. The second thing you also need to realize about biblical predestination is that it is a conditional state. Predestination is a conditional state, meaning that those desiring to be a part of the predestined group must meet certain conditions in order to gain entrance. That's why Scripture repeatedly indicates that association with God is a choice made by individuals. In the Old Testament, the Israelites, they were chosen by God, but God indicated that each individual member of that community still had to be, still had to choose to be a part of his covenant people. You know, God presented Israel with the choice to follow him. They could opt in or they could opt out. Think about it. After the people of Israel had received the covenant, after they had been escorted safely from Egypt to Canaan, after they had been empowered by God to capture that land, Joshua stands up in their presence and he presents them with a choice that you can read in Joshua chapter 24 and verse 15. God's already chosen these people. God's already given them his covenant. But now, through Joshua, he gives them a choice. And here's what Joshua says. If it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Inherent within this choice that Joshua is presenting on behalf of God is a condition. That condition is that if you choose God, if this day you choose God, then you have to serve God. That meant adhering to the conditions that he had stated in the covenant for inclusion among his people. Conditions for the Israelites would include circumcision. It would include a, a kosher diet. It would include 
a sacrificial system. And here's the thing. You could be an Israelite physically, but not spiritually. And you could be an Israelite spiritually, but not physically. Because God had chosen a people, and you could opt into those people as long as you were willing to keep His covenant. And here in the New Testament, the church, as we've already mentioned, was chosen by God. And God indicated that each individual still had to choose to be a part of His church. Jesus presented the world with the choice to follow Him. When He said in Luke chapter 9, verse 23 and 24, if, and there's that wonderful conditional term again, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. In those words, Jesus used a conditional term and thereby indicated that the following instructions were not being forced on mankind, they were being left up to mankind. Inherent within what Jesus was saying is a choice. And with this choice was the condition that if you're going to choose to follow Jesus, then you're going to have to adhere to the conditions that are presented in his inspired word for inclusion among his people. If we go over to Ephesians chapter 1, which we've been there quite a bit tonight because that's a passage in which Paul used the predestined terminology twice. But in Ephesians chapter 1, as Paul presented the biblical concept of predestination, there is a condition that is repeated over and over again. And it can be easily unnoticed. It's the condition of being in Him. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4 says that God chose us in Him, that is, in Christ. And Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7 says, In Him we have redemption. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 10 says that God united all things in Him. Verse 11. Verse 11 says, In Him we have obtained an inheritance. And verse 13 says that you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you believed in Him. So all these blessings are the results of being in Him. But how does one become in Him? If you jump over to Galatians chapter 3 and verse 26, Paul said that in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God. In other words, Paul indicates that the in Him status is equivalent to an adoption. When you are in Him, you are a child of God. And Paul goes on to say in the very next verses, verses 27 through 29 of Galatians chapter 3, he goes on to say that as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And so you reach that in Him status when you put on Christ 
in baptism. So here's the point. Here's where we're getting to. By noticing that predestination is a corporate standing, and by noticing that predestination... I, can't re- I don't have my backslide to look up and get my notes. And that pre- noting predestination is a conditional state. Here's where it leads us to a biblical concept of predestination. Predestination is the foretold acceptance of a corporate body based on revealed conditions. Predestination is the foretold acceptance by God of a corporate body based on His revealed conditions. Maybe this image can help us wrap our minds around it. Picture on the screen is an airplane, and you may be wondering what an airplane has to do with predestination. Well, I believe that securing an airplane ticket functions as a good metaphor for biblical predestination. You know, airlines have already scheduled flights between cities months in advance. They have predetermined the number of flights that will go from one city to another. They have predetermined the time of those flights, and they have predetermined the destination of those flights. Right now, depending on the airline company, you can purchase tickets for flights anywhere from six months to 12 months in advance. Those flights have already been determined. Now, your responsibility as a potential passenger is this. You have the responsibility to obtain a ticket for that predetermined flight. And you have the responsibility to be ready to board that flight when it's scheduled to depart. The plane has a predetermined destination. The passengers do not. And if the passengers want to go to that destination, then it's up to each individual passenger to be on that plane. In similar fashion, God has predetermined the destination of His people, the church. And it's up to you, and it's up to me, to secure our place among those people. I think this is where the parable of the wedding feast comes into play. The parable of the wedding feast is in Matthew chapter 22 in the first 14 verses. And according to that parable, a king invited anybody and everybody to his son's wedding after the original invitees rejected the invitation. You and I have been invited to that same wedding feast We just have to decide whether or not we will accept or reject that invitation. And it's worth noting that an IT showed up to the wedding feast but was not wearing the appropriate attire. And when the king saw it, he ordered his servants to cast that individual into the outer darkness in a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In other words, accepting the invitation is not enough you also have to abide by the conditions of the invitation. And so the question we need to ponder tonight as we reframe our understanding of predestination 
is have we obeyed the conditions of God's invitation for us to be numbered among the chosen? It's interesting that at the conclusion of the parable of the wedding feast, Jesus said, many are called, but few are chosen. My question for you tonight is, are you numbered among the chosen? Have you, to use the airplane analogy, have you purchased your ticket? Are you ready to board? Because the one thing we don't know is when departure will come. So will you be ready when it does? If not, then we invite you to respond tonight by confessing your faith that Jesus Christ is the risen Son of God, by repenting of your sins, and by being immersed in water for the forgiveness of those sins. And it may be, it may be that you've made that decision, that you have entered the in Christ state, but that somewhere along the way, one of those ifs caught up to you. That somewhere in your own journey of faith, you may have started the walk, but you've fallen away. It may be that tonight you need to be restored, and that your life needs to be realigned with the will of God. That may be the case as well, and this invitation is extended to you, so that you can repent and you can turn your life around and re-secure your boarding pass, so to speak. If you have any need to respond to tonight's invitation as we reframe our understanding of predestination, then we invite you to come while together we stand and sing. Oh